The following is a message of First Baptist Richardson. For more information, please visit fbcr.org. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, will you turn with me to Acts chapter 14? Acts chapter 14. As you're turning there, I want to welcome all of you who are in Worship East and joining us this morning. We are so excited to have two services, one congregation in this place And we appreciate each and every one of you being here as well. I have the privilege of getting to preach for the month of January in our church. My name is Ryan Musser and I am a church member here. And I am honored to get to bring God's word today. If you have been reading in the well, you're going to be familiar with some of the passages that we're going to be hearing over the next few weeks. We'll be preaching from the passages that are in and around those but if you haven't been in that reading, you can certainly pick one up. I believe they have some with the next step to trouble, or they can get you some there. And today, I'm going to give you some background information. So if you're just jumping in, maybe you made one of those New Year's resolutions. How many of you made a New Year's resolution, just so that I know? Uh, someone rose, rose two hands. I don't know what that... I'm excited because there's something going on in your life. I, I, uh, I like to start my resolutions early, but nonetheless, if you did and you're going, I'd like to get into some Bible reading, the well is a great place to start. We'll be doing that as a congregation. It is a fantastic journey we'll be taking together. And some of those readings are in the book of Acts. Today, we're in Acts chapter 14, and we'll be beginning in verse 8. Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 8, goes like this. In Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet and had never walked, for he had been crippled from birth. He listened to Paul as he was speaking, and Paul, looking at him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said in a loud voice, Stand up on your feet. And the man sprang up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, They shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates. He and the crowds began to offer sacrifice. When the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends! Why are you doing this? We are mortals just like you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these worthless worthless things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to follow their own ways. He has not left himself without a witness in doing good, giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the crowds from offering and sacrificing to them. But the Jews came there from Antioch and Iconium and won over the crowds. Then they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples surrounded him, he got up and went into the city. The next day he went on with Barnabas to Derby. We're going to put this story into context a little bit. We're in the book of Acts, which occurs after Jesus was dead, buried, and resurrected. 
We heard about the Acts 1-8 message, that we are to go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's how the book starts. But there's this actual human story that takes place along the way, full of people who get brought into this Acts 1-8 mission. There's a guy named Saul, who's also called Paul. For today, Without going through a lot of name changes, I will be calling him Paul just to keep the confusion down. But it's the same guy, named after the original King Saul, the first king of the Israels. Paul, in Acts chapter 9, is not a follower of Jesus. Paul is a terrorist. Paul is going into homes full of those who believe and ripping them out of their homes and having them cast into jail. Paul is the guy who was there when Stephen, the very first Christian martyr, was stoned and killed. And it says specifically, and Paul approved on it. He looked down at the dead Stephen and thought, this is good. That's who Paul is. And Paul is on the road to Damascus with letters of extradition from the Jewish authorities to go get the Jewish believers who have followed Jesus in other places and to drag them back for jail, punishment, and judgment. And on the road to Damascus, the grace of Jesus is made manifest as Jesus comes and instead of striking down the terrorist, blinds him right there. And tells him to go into the city and wait. Paul goes into Damascus blind for three days until Jesus gets a man named Ananias and says, go heal Paul. Ananias, I think reasonably so, has a question for God as to whether or not he is absolutely certain this is the course of action he wishes to take, healing Paul. And God specifically says, go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before the Gentiles and before the kings and before Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul, having his sight restored, goes into Jerusalem, back where he came from, and starts preaching and proclaiming the good news of Jesus. This one that he thought was a fraud who healed him and he found out is actually alive. It changes Paul. Easter changes everything. And Paul, right there in that moment, starts proclaiming the good news so effectively that they plot to kill him and the believers have to sneak him out. And they send him back to his hometown. Tarsus. In Acts chapter 9, verse 30, that's where we leave Paul. In the meantime, there's a lot that goes on in the book of Acts. And a lot of it has to do with this change that's happening. See, originally Jesus came as a Jew and he was there with the Jews. And it was a movement in Judaism. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He is the one they're called to follow, and many of them do. But what starts to happen is there becomes this question of who else can be a part of this thing? We talked last summer while I was preaching about the fact that there were a lot of other people who got in. It seemed like every time they knew who this salvation was for, the circle got a little bigger and a little bigger. Women got brought into the fold pretty early on in the thing. And then we had a man who could never have been a Jew, a eunuch who gets brought in and he's allowed as well. We have those who didn't start as Jews, became Jews, the Hellenistic Jews. 
they were allowed in. And then, and then there's this other group of people that are just non-Jewish people who are called Gentiles. And the church, after Paul starts wrestling with this, and Peter has visions, and he meets with a man named Cornelius, and he starts meeting with Gentile believers, non-Jews who follow Jesus, and finds that they have received the Holy Spirit. And so the church has a meeting about this, because that's what we do when we disagree about something. They have a meeting about this, and they find that if the Gentiles really have received the Holy Spirit, then apparently they just get to come as they are. So they baptize them and bring them in, and now it appears that Gentiles just to get to be a part of the church. All of that has happened while Paul is sitting at home. There's a place called Antioch, and in Antioch, the Jews start believing in Jesus there, but then also Gentiles start believing, and it just starts exploding, and the Jerusalem church says, we need to send someone over there to be a pastor. Hey, everyone likes Barnabas. I mean, it means son of encouragement. Who doesn't like an encouraging guy? You've got that friend, somebody who's always upbeat. That's not me, but I'm glad there's someone like that. Barnabas was that kind of guy. He knew Jesus. He loved Jesus. People liked him. Let's send Barnabas. Barnabas says, okay. Barnabas starts walking and he walks to Antioch and he just keeps on going right past where he's supposed to stop. He keeps walking, takes a left at the sea and turns into a little town called Tarsus and taps on the shoulder a guy named Paul. If this were the movie, this would be the point in time where you hear Avengers assemble. This is Paul and Barnabas going back together to Antioch where they stay for one year and the church thrives as they pastor. And they're there for that year. And after being there for that year, the Holy Spirit tells the believers in the church, the Jews and Gentiles there, who are being pastored alongside Paul and Barnabas, that God has called these two for other work and they're to send them out. Those sent out are called apostles in the Greek. Paul and Barnabas as apostles go out from there and do a new thing. They go on the first mission trip really ever. And not a short-term trip. They go out to go from place to place telling people about Jesus. They lay hands on them and pray for them and send them out in the Spirit's name and power. And as they're planting churches and sharing the good news, this is to be their way of doing things from here on out for a while. And so they go. And chapter 13 of the book of Acts is the very first mission trip Paul ever took. He has three missionary journeys over his life. And this is the beginning of the very first one. I love it when people go on mission trips. I love hearing how things went. If we were to look at this in chapter 13, I guess the question we might ask Paul's, how did it go? Well, not so great in chapter 13. Let's just say mixed results. There's some success. There are some people who come and start to believe in Jesus, but there's a lot of conflict as well. There's, there's a sorcerer named Elymas, and they have a little conflict with him argument entails and Paul gets pretty riled up. I, I don't know if you can imagine a guy who was willing to lead a terrorist cell getting riled up, but you can kind of see the personality there already. Paul gets riled up and they have some conflict. Paul comes out on top. Elemis, not so great. 
Nonetheless, uh, the situation has a positive out of it. The pro-council, the local leader, comes to faith in Christ, so that seems like a win. But in the process of this, one of the other missionaries with him, a man named John Mark, decides, I'm done with this, and goes home. And that really bothers Paul. Like, really, really, really bothers Paul. Apparently something happened that was deeply personal. We don't exactly know what it was, but something happened that bothered him so much that later on he's not really going to be willing to work with this man anymore. By the way, Barnabas is his cousin. So there's some personal strife going on in chapter 13, and they're not that successful in the first place. But they head to another town, another town named Antioch, a different Antioch, Antioch of Pisidia, and they have some success at first. Some of the Jews and Gentiles, as they're preaching in the synagogue there, actually receive Jesus, and it's going well. But then the Jews who don't believe go to the leaders and start stirring up problems and start creating conflict for them. And all of a sudden, they're being kicked out of the town by those same leaders. When I say kicked out of the town, I don't want you to think the city limits. They actually chased them out of the entire region. Just imagine someone throwing you across the county line. That's kind of what this is. They chased them out, and it's so bad that Paul and Barnabas actually shake the dust from their feet, as Jesus said to do, and walked off. Not a really positive experience. Nonetheless, it says the disciples were encouraged. I don't know that Paul and Barnabas were. In Acts chapter 14, right before our passage today, they go to Iconium. And this is the Bible's first TLDR moment. It says specifically, The same thing occurred in Iconium. They went to the synagogue. Some of the Jews and Gentiles believed. The Jews who did not believe went and stirred up the community against Barnabas and Saul. And this time, there is a plot to have them stoned. So Barnabas and Paul have to rush out and sneak out of the city to get away before they get killed. And that brings us to our story today. Those encouraging tales are what come right before this passage. That's the context in which this happens. They're ministering to the Lystrians. Now, the Lystrians are a tribal people, very uneducated. They didn't have that opportunity. These are people who had been conquered by the Romans. They'd been around for the Greeks, had all that mythology and all that background, but they were conquered by the Romans, and they really weren't that important to anybody, so they were just kind of there. They had their own language, And their own way of doing things. There's no synagogue for Paul and Barnabas to go to. And as they come in, they notice a man who is disabled. And he's very disabled. The Bible points out three times that he's disabled. Can't walk. His feet don't move. And it it does that so that you will understand this guy is really, really not able to get around. It's a serious disability. And if you're thinking, I swear I've heard this story before, you have. Jesus, when he starts his ministry, comes upon a man who's never been able to walk. Peter, when he starts his ministry in the book of Acts, comes upon a man who's unable to walk. Paul, when he starts his ministry, comes upon a man who's unable to walk. And just like those two, seeing at him and looking intently at him, he sees faith there and says, Get up and walk. 
and the man stands up. Now, unfortunately for Paul, he is not sitting in the same place Peter and Jesus were. He's not surrounded by Jews who would have seen this as prophets of God who have come in his power and glory should be given to God. No, he's sitting in a very tribal place with a completely different background, a different faith journey, a different story, no context for this. And they don't understand what just happened, but they know it was a miracle. And so they start shouting in a language that Paul and Barnabas don't speak. And they start shouting, this must be Zeus and Hermes. Now, to be fair, there was a story that went around in this region that Zeus and Hermes had shown up years and years before. Zeus was the head of the Greek pantheon of gods, and he was the father of Hermes. Hermes was the son, but he did all the talking. You can understand why they thought that was Paul. And these two apparently were rumored to have showed up in the Lyconia region. And when they did, the people weren't gracious and they weren't hospitable and the gods smote them. They were smitten. Anyway, nonetheless, bad things happened to them. And so they've decided that this time, whatever is going to happen, they're going to be very, very hospitable. So they immediately get the priest and they get some offerings together and they get garland and they're going to make a sacrifice to show how much they've changed and how hospitable they are and how grateful they are for the miracle. And Paul and Barnabas have no idea what's going on because they don't speak the language. And they only really figure it out when the priest of Zeus shows up with the oxen and garlands and is about to do a sacrifice and create some idolatry right there on behalf of these two Jewish men. And that's where they rip their clothes and go, whoa, 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 please stop. Big misunderstanding We're humans. Take a look. Just like you. And then Paul preaches a missionary sermon. I like missionary sermons. First of all, they're short. No one ever complained about a short sermon. That has never happened. My wife has been to a lot of my sermons. She always tells me how I did after church. She also keeps time. The score goes up as the minutes go down. This is a missionary sermon. And I also like it because they can't use all the scriptures that they were raised on. They can't use those things. These people have never heard them. So what do they do? They use what they know. And Paul says, look, you don't know this God, but he has left evidence of him in your lives. In, in the old days, he used to let the nations go their own way, but he has come. There's a progressive revelation going on. He's come. We've come to tell you good news, and he's been here. You've seen the rains fall and the crops grow. You have been filled with both food and joy. This is the God who sent us to you. He preaches a pretty good sermon. Sometimes you try your best, and the message just doesn't quite get across. It's not clear they got the message here. Because very quickly, remember those Jewish believers who were mad at them in the surrounding counties? They decide to come over here and look who they find, Paul and Barnabas. I imagine some of the locals do speak the same language as the Lyconians, and they stir up those crowds. And now I'm thinking that these crowds think, 
that Paul and Barnabas came to impersonate the gods, even though they were humans. And they have Paul stoned and drugged out of the city and left for dead. Can we agree that's a rough start to a mission trip? I have led a lot of mission trips. If any one of the following things happened, I would have considered that a rough trip. One, the people that I am preaching to get so mad they chase me out of the city and or county. Two, the people I'm preaching to have a plot to kill me. Three, the people I'm preaching to start offering idolatry because of my sermon. Four, the people I'm preaching to actively kill me. That for me would be a rough anything. It is a rough start for Paul and a rough start for Barnabas. And I know there are some biblical scholars sitting here. Yes, but God said in Acts chapter 9 that he was going to show Paul how much he had to suffer for his namesake. Doesn't change the fact that it's a rough start, church. Knowing why doesn't make it easier. And by the way, may I add, Barnabas didn't do a thing but his job, so rough start. That is a tough beginning to a story. We're at the time of year where people make New Year's resolutions, where they try to change things about themselves. I understand that. I really didn't grow up doing that, but I I understand it. I, I decide in October of every year that I need to lose weight because I really want to run the gauntlet of the holiday candy, the pies at Thanksgiving, and all the treats at Christmas. Let's go ahead and get it started rough. And that's what I do every single year. That way when I get to New Year's, it's like, do you have a resolution? Yes, suffer less. Nonetheless, I'm sure there are some of you in this room who did do that. And if you did, today's the 7th, so it's been about a week. How's that going? See, you laugh. That tells me how that's going. Most of the time, when we start something new and we try to pick up a new habit, something we want to change about ourselves, it has mixed results at best. First worship service of the year, the computer had different ideas. It can be a rough start, can it, Andy? I look on this story of Paul's first missionary journey, the very first one he had, and I see this rough start, and I started thinking back to my own ministry and thinking back to periods of time in my life, thinking back to college, thinking back even to high school, thinking to all these transitions and changes where I had starts, and you know what I think? I don't actually think very much about how the thing started. When I look back on the periods of my life, that's not how I focus on it. I think about what happened in the middle and the end far more than I do the start. When I think about what's important about the start, I I think what's important about it is that it's not the end. The start is just the start unless you stop. It remains just a start. A rough start is just a start unless you stop, and then it becomes the story. I was thinking thinking about times where things didn't start well. 
In 2010, I was a youth minister of First Baptist Church of Hewitt. Wonderful church right outside of Waco in a little community called Hewitt, Texas. Love that place. I've been a youth minister for a few years there, and I I'd finished seminary a few years before. When I finished seminary, by the way, it was a small church, and so someone came up to me and said, thank you for your service. We're going to hate, you know, losing you. And I went, I'm not going anywhere. I just graduated. They go, oh, people always leave. And I was like, well, I, I understand that. I, I'll just be hungry. It's okay. So nonetheless, I was there for a few years. And, and while I was there, I'd, I'd been in Waco. And Waco had a poverty rate of over 30%. And I dealt with a lot of the poor people. But in our church, there was this attitude that if they wanted a job, they could get one. And I saw these poor people and people who were on the streets or single moms living in places. And a lot of them didn't have like cars and vehicles went places. And there was this kind of feeling in our congregation as we discussed poverty. A lot of people thought, well, they they could still do it. And so being 20-something years old and in the ministry... I decided that for the 40 days before Easter, my buddy and I, who is also a pastor, we would give up our cars for the 40 days before Easter. And we would find out exactly how easy it was to have a job, go get groceries, meet with people, have a normal life without kids if you didn't have a car in Waco, Texas. We were not allowed to use our friends as transportation because if you had a large support structure unlikely you'd be in this situation. So we weren't allowed to do that for anyone who knew us. We were allowed to use public transportation and bicycles or walking. So we were on our bicycles a lot because the public transportation in Waco, we found out, only went one way. So you could ride your bike down to the grocery store, get milk, and then ride two hours back. That milk was going to be butter by the time you got home. In any case, it snowed twice that spring because God does have a sense of humor And it rained several times, and it was a very difficult thing. And as I was coming toward the end of it, I had come to the decision that if you had, I don't know, a boss who called at the last minute and said, I need you to come in, and you didn't have a car, I don't really care how diligent you are. You're showing up soaked and wet and tired, and if there's other employees, they're going to give that hourly job to them. We're getting toward the end of a 40-day journey of misery when Texas Baptists came up with a brilliant idea, a guy named Rand Jenkins over there came up with an idea called Bike Out Hunger. It is and was a thing where Texas Baptists would cycle across the state of Texas, raising money and awareness of hungry people in our communities, everywhere there was, talking to churches about who were there. Texas was the number one state in the union for food insecure children at the time. My friend and I, who are not cyclists and have been riding our bikes unintentionally for a while now, it feels, read this and think about what we had done it for and start seeing some correlations and start feeling like we needed to do something. But thankfully, it's not going to come through our town, right? Actually, it came through Hewitt, Texas. Well, but they're going to be riding through and going on. What are the chances we would catch them? Oh, no, they're spending the night there. We could get up the next morning and ride. Well, it's probably too far away. It's a mile from our house. Sometimes God doesn't play fair. 
So since we had so many people following us and we were doing this for this reason in the first place, we raised funds and awareness and decided to join the bike ride. I borrowed a road bike because I had been riding around on my mountain bike the entire time and the first day's ride was 58 miles and I had never ridden 50 and I really didn't want to try it on a mountain bike and some guy in the church said, I've got a road bike you can borrow and not knowing anything about how bikes really work, I said, sure, and got on this bike. So the next morning, I kiss my beautiful wife goodbye, get on this road bike, and when everyone else says go, I start pedaling. Guys, I cannot explain to you exactly the misery I experienced. I was pedaling as hard as I could and getting nowhere fast. The people on their bikes had just zoomed off. Like it was some kind of cartoon. There was a dust cloud and then just gone, ghosted. I'm sitting there and all that's left is my buddy Morgan, who's a big boy and very strong, a lot of endurance, but on his mountain bike in front of me pulling away and a guy named John that I just met who is with Texas Baptist that drew the short straw and had to be in the back, I think for insurance purposes. And everyone has left us. And I am in my hometown panting that first mile, dying of breath. My heart rate had to be close to 200, and I am sweating profusely. I've been riding miles and miles all the time, and now I am on this road bike, and I am struggling. And I got in my head. You ever get in your head? You ever have that thing where things are going wrong, and you start thinking about all the reasons why this was a bad idea. I sat there and I started thinking about how much of a fool I had been to do this. Perhaps all God wanted me to do was sell something and give some money. Do anything but what are you doing? You are not in faith. Everyone else is wearing lycra. There's more lycra here than you've seen except outside of SeaWorld. And you have gotten on this bike. What are you doing? And as I'm going through this, I'm still pedaling, getting nowhere fast. And I know that two and a half miles up the road is a turnoff that goes to my house. (laughs) And I'm wondering what in the world they could possibly do. I could just take a turn. I'm not going to go fast, but I'm going to take a turn. And John's going to have the rough decision of deciding to keep up with Morgan or following me. Got to go with the guy that's still on the path. I can make it home, crawl into my house and tell my wife it was a horrible mistake and just crawl into bed under the sheets and tell everyone I'm sorry and sell something like a kidney and give it because I obviously can't do this. Two and a quarter miles in, I can see the exit and I'm, I'm at this point just this side of passing out. And John says, can we stop for a second? Which is fine by me because it's almost no difference from what we're doing now. As I get off the bike, John flips it over with some kind of expertise I didn't have and starts doing things to the components on the bike. After a few seconds, he says, okay, let's go again. And I'm going, we're going to go again for about a quarter mile, buddy. I'm out of here. I get back on the bike and suddenly I'm able to go. Like it, it feels better. I can breathe again. That's a nice feeling. I'm keeping up not only with Morgan, but I'm leaving him behind. Like it's, it's, I'm able to move. And I said, John, what did you do? He said, your brake had gotten bent onto the tire. You just rode two and a quarter miles with the brakes on. 
one of my favorite pictures in the world, so much so that it is the background of my desktop, is a picture three days later when I'm in San Antonio at the last church, at the last stop, on top of the last hill, on a very sunny day. I am the last person that showed up that day. I have my head down. I have been all but dehydrated. There is sweat all over me, and I am all alone, but I am at the end of that ride. A rough start wasn't the end of the story, and it never has to be. A rough start's just a rough start unless you stop. I don't know what you've decided you want to do better this year. I don't know what that is. Perhaps it's something to do with you spending more time with your family, trying to balance work or school. Maybe it's a relationship you're working on. Perhaps you're a person who's got some health stuff and you go, I've really been working on on being better about that. I pray and wish the best for you there. Maybe it's that you really want to grow in your relationship with Christ and so you're going to read scripture and get into it. Maybe you've given something up so you remember to do that. It's called fasting. We do that. Maybe that's something you've done. I don't know, but I'm going to ask you to do one other thing. In addition to whatever else you've done that I pray the best for you, I'm going to ask this year that you do something that I'm challenging myself to do as well. I want you to go ahead and find the courage to tell two people this year about Jesus and invite them to some church somewhere. And I'm going to tell you why. First of all, two people. Why? Because you might have a rough start. I love the Mythbusters because I always said failure is an option. You bet it is. Things do go wrong in this world. You could have somebody get upset at you. It could happen. I have been talking about my faith for years. I went to law school at SMU and got to talk about my faith all the time. Not at one point in time ever did anyone get mad at me. To be honest with you, it is more controversial that I think that the SEC is completely overrated than it is that I follow Jesus. You want to know which one of those two statements are going to get someone mad about me? It's the first one. I could tell somebody I love Jesus and that's who I am and it's a part of my life. And if you'd be interested in that at all, come talk to me about it. And they'd be fine with that. I tell them I think Alabama's really not as good as they think they are. And that is some fighting words. (laughs) This year, we have always been called to be light and love where we are. And there are some of you living that where you are. And you go, I want to be a light for Christ. And we always talk about loving people until they ask why. This year for two people, don't wait until they do. Tell them anyway. And if you're somebody who's uncomfortable talking about your faith, then say that. Say, you know what? I know you've been going through some stuff and I'm not comfortable talking about my faith, but I just want to tell you who I am and who I am is somebody that finds that Jesus changes stuff in my life. And if you don't have anybody who's telling you that and loves you with that, I do. You need a place to come, you can come with me. If you don't, we never have to talk about it again, but I love you and just wanted you to know. There's your conversation. You could get both of them done by the end of January if you wanted to, or you could take one for each six months. I don't really care. But what I do think is this, if at First Baptist Church of Richardson, if in Richardson, everyone in this congregation, and look around at how many people are here, if everyone in this congregation chose two people to actually open up about and say something about and just put it out there, even if it goes wrong, That would change a lot of lives. I'm a guy who did not believe in Jesus, who someone just said, hey man, I I don't know if it matters to you, but if you want to come with me sometime to church, I don't know, I I noticed a lot of people mess with you. We're a lot of nice people. We, We would be nice to you. 
That's all it was. He didn't have three points in a poem, and I encourage you not to either. Just be genuine. Changed my world. But what if it goes wrong? What if it does? What if it's not successful? What does success look like? What if you saying that just convinces somebody that somebody who loves Jesus isn't the stereotype they see on TV? What if the next person that shares gets a chance for more than a 30-second conversation because you weren't a jerk and you were somebody who genuinely cared about them? What if? Never know how far we can go if we don't dare getting past a rough start. I stopped the story with Paul when I was explaining it, with him stoned on the ground. Here's what I love. He got up. I wonder if Jesus gave him the opportunity to stay there. I wonder if he was looking for an exit ramp like I was. I wonder if the thought went through his mind, but I don't know because what I do know is he got back up. He was surrounded by people who wanted to support him. So are you. He got back up and got at it again. He went back into that town and then went to the next one. And because he did, he continued going until it got not quite as rough. But when they whipped him, when they beat him, when they jailed him, when they stoned him, he kept going. And because he did thousands of people came to know and then they kept running as well and we've heard that story and we know where it ends and I am here today because people kept running who knows who's going to be here next year if you do in this place today I dare you to get past a rough start in sharing your faith let's pray Jesus Christ, Son of God, we thank you so much that you are a God who is not intimidated by a rough start. You are one God who has called us to be salt and light where we are and to also use our words. May people this year find that First Baptist Church of Richardson is a group of people who are out among them and love them and you very much. We ask all this in your name, Christ Jesus. Amen.